This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. All right, let's do this. Welcome to Kincaid and Breckenridge. I'm Roger Kincaid, 58156. That's Rob Breckenridge. Senior fellow, the Chorus Broadcasting Institute. Yes, I am Rob Breckenridge. <laughs> you know, you should, okay, here's, <laughs> I'll say your name correctly. You say my name. I'll say yeah. your name correctly, and then you correct me. Anyway, <laughs> this here is uh, Rob Breckenridge. <laughs> uh, correct. <laughs> okay. Is that what you meant? Yeah, kind of. To correct you. It's uh, oh, it's uh, it's Friday. We're kind of loosey-goosey heading into a long weekend. We hope that you're feeling the same way. Uh, it's 9.35. It's a little bit early to be staring at the clock, and we've got some important issues to get to on it the program feels like today. It, it seems like I think a lot of people are off today. Yeah, it's kind of... That, that's yeah. my sense. I get that, too. Like, my kids are off today. Oh, really? They, teachers work, hard. Just... they, they work hard all year. <laughs> Oh, the teachers. That... Teachers already got Monday off, but it's like they had to get Friday off too, I guess. Jeez. Why do they do that? Do they just, is it like a professional development day? Is that what they yeah, call it? That's yeah, that's what they call it. Where your parents, you, you know, kids <laughs> kids will, will remember going back to school and just seeing how much more professionally developed oh, their teachers were following those days. Uh, I sure hope so. Oh, well. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got a lot to get to on the program today. Uh, by the way, we're going to have an open phone segment. Because uh, after the news to 10 o'clock, we're going to talk about uh, uh, the NCR verdict that, that many of us believe is uh, coming down in the Matthew DeGroote trial. Um, and so we're going to talk to uh, a clinical psychologist uh, about this, a forensic psychologist, rather, about this uh, from the Canadian Addictions and Mental Health Center, uh, who can talk to us about like what happens after an NCR verdict is reached in terms of who decides how much liberty this person should have, what sorts of treatments this person must undertake, and when this person uh, could be reintegrated safely into society. Because it's a little bit more complex than I think a lot of people uh, make it out to be. And we certainly hear from, from many, many people in our audience who feel as though the NCR verdict is getting away with one. So we're going to explore the aftermath of an NCR verdict a little bit further on the program following the news to 10 o'clock. Right. I, I think people, and I don't know, maybe it's been shaped in part by TV shows or movies. Like when, when someone's using an insanity defense, I think people see it as, you know, that's your way of, of uh, being acquitted. That they have to, you know, they find a reason to acquit you. So if you use the insanity defense and they can't find you guilty, therefore you're somehow acquitted and, and you just walk out of there and isn't it great? But that, that's not how it works. Uh, a verdict of not criminally responsible does not mean you go free. It means you just go down a different path than the, the prison system. So we'll, we'll get an explanation. Someone who's uh, intimately familiar, uh, familiar with all of this, uh, chief forensic uh, psychiatrist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. We'll talk about what happens and, and how this process works. 
again, I, we don't know what's going to happen with Matthew DeGroote. We won't know until, uh, I guess, next week, perhaps, at the earliest. But, uh, yeah, as you say, I mean, it certainly seems as though this is the direction things are headed, and we'll talk about what that might mean. Yeah, we'll talk about it with you, too. Like I said, open phones on that coming up, uh, following that interview, following the news to 10 o'clock. Uh, Kinder Morgan. They've got this pipeline. It's lovely. It's been very, very safe for many decades now. It's called the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And as you know, they've wanted to expand it, run a a parallel pipeline through the same corridor. Uh, So really no big deal, but that's what uh, the NEB figured anyway. They said, hey, yeah, great. National Energy Board, go ahead. Well, still with 157 conditions. That's fine. That's perfect. You know, if you want to build a, a skyscraper in the city, they say, go ahead. Here's the conditions. You know, it's got to conform to certain codes, and you've got to make sure that uh, your T's are crossed, your I's are dotted, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, but this pipeline will never get built, rest assured. Now, uh, Justin Trudeau and his liberal cabinet, they have until the end of the year, they have until December 2016 to decide whether or not the pipeline can go ahead. But there are so many other processes and things that can happen here. And there's just this remarkable bureaucratic overlap because BC gets to do their own assessment on the project. And in BC, they talk, they consult with far more stakeholders, uh, First Nations, et cetera, et cetera. And then even if the project were to go ahead, it would be uh, slapped with regulations by the BC government as well. And while we know Christy Clark uh, doesn't seem to want to have uh, these pipelines running through her province, nor does, at least the last time they had an election, nor does the, uh, the NDP. Uh, we'll see if they've maybe changed their opinions on it. And, and that could actually be a good thing if they get an NDP government there that wants to be seen to be working with Alberta's NDP. Who knows? Maybe that could be the odd saving grace for this pipeline project. But I wouldn't bet any money on it. I think that what the news we got yesterday about uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline from Kinder Morgan is that uh, this would be a safe pipeline that will never be built. Well, you know, it would be pretty easy, I think, for the cabinet to come out and say, um, you know, this. This one approval, this has some conditions on it, which we think makes sense, and, and we're going to uh, we're going to allow it to go ahead. I mean, they could do that today if they wanted to, I would think. I don't know why they have to wait until December. But the problem is, and, and there was an interesting piece in, in the Financial Post making this argument, that it's Trudeau himself, maybe, that has made this unlikely because he has spent so much time undermining the NEB process. Now, again, he's come in and he's brought in some some new conditions, some new, uh, try to raise the bar, I guess, that's going to apply to these reviews, but it didn't apply here. So I suppose technically this is still a process under the uh, old rules. It's still, I think, very vigorous and uh, very thorough, but still it, it was conducted under a system that Justin Trudeau said many times was insufficient. And people opposed to this pipeline have pointed that out many times, that how can we Take the word of the NEB. Even Justin Trudeau and the Liberals have criticized the NEB and this process. So he himself has done a lot, I think, to, to undermine this. That's going to be a big problem. We're, we're hearing that Justin Trudeau is maybe seeing pipelines in a different light, given the uh, economic downturn and the need for some economic growth and prosperity. And pipelines are a way to do that, making nice with, with the Alberta government. So here's his opportunity. Let's, let's make it happen. But, yeah, there, there are reasons to be pessimistic. Yeah, and by the way, that whole charade in Fort McMurray last week now, uh, I think that uh, the Prime Minister has an opportunity to do what, you know, what would really help that community, help this province, uh, by by saying, yeah, this pipeline should go ahead and lobbying for it. But <clears throat> well, this pipeline, an expansion, I guess maybe, you know, maybe it's important to keep framing it that way, because as you say, the Trans Mountain Pipeline exists. It's the same route. They're, they're going to expand it. It would triple its capacity and what it, what it can carry. But it's there. It exists. 
Uh, and you know what? There are certainly Aboriginal groups in, in BC that vow to fight this to the end, but there's about 40 or so Aboriginal groups and communities in Alberta and BC that are impacted by this that have signed on to it. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't forget that either. Uh, we might talk a little bit more about British Columbia in terms of the real estate situation out there. You, you might be uh, hearing a lot of hubbub about millennials being priced out of real estate in Vancouver. We kind of want to get to the bottom of the fascination with this story. Um, I, you know, I've got a couple of different takes on it. First of all, I wonder how important it is for millennials to buy homes in Vancouver. First and foremost, are we telling well, you lived in Vancouver? Yeah, I did. And I owned a, a, a condo out there and I guess, well, I'm not a millennial. What am I at the tail end of Gen X? <sighs> but it's like, yeah, it's, a, it's expensive. Sure. But I mean, should everybody have a, uh, the right to purchase a home in the city that they want to live in? Because millennials can buy homes in Canada. They might be more expensive in Vancouver. But I just think there's a whole lot of questions in terms of what sort of accommodations should be made for people so that they can own property. Because the, the reality of the situation in Vancouver is that the prices are so high, the market is so hot in Vancouver, and it's starting to get that way in other markets like Toronto. But, but what would you do? Would you tell people that we are going to uh, throttle back your investments in your, your, your primary investments and maybe screw with your retirement plan just so that a bunch of 30-somethings can be able to buy a starter home? That, that seems like it's an entirely different problem yeah. that you're willing to create. Well, yeah. Anyone is free to buy any property in this country, provided you can meet the, the conditions of the seller. Price, and <laughs> price first and foremost amongst them, but, but others too. Uh, and yeah, if, if, you can, uh, if you can afford the price of the property, you're free to buy it. Vancouver's an expensive city. I mean, San Francisco's an expensive city. Right. Manhattan, very expensive to buy property in Manhattan. Okay. That's, that's just how it is. How, what, what, would we want it any other way? Do we really want the government stepping in and what would essentially be, uh, you know, like rent control, but for <laughs> buying and selling property? Uh, that seems ominous. I, I recently uh, sold a home about a year ago, and uh, certainly a home I bought in 2003, I sold it for, for um, more than I bought it for. I also had to go out and, and buy a new house, so... Um, I don't know. Do we really need to, to get in and tinker with this? Um, when you sold your home, by the way, did you sell it for below market value because you wanted to sell it to somebody <laughs> who, uh, who wanted to live in Airdrie? Um, I thought about it, <laughs> See, <the laughs> which reason, is to say, no, I didn't. <laughs> there's this website. Um, <laughs> there's a website in Vancouver right now, and it is called uh, VancouverHomeProject.com. And I'll, I'll just read it to you. Uh, the Vancouver real estate market is out of control. What's market, uh, what's market is no longer market. The cause, we're not sure. Low interest rates, foreign money, no supply. The solution, we don't know. Raise interest rates, vacancy tax, foreign ownership restrictions. We've hit an impasse, and it's time to try something different. If you own a home in Vancouver and are willing to sell it below market value to a buyer that wants to live in this city, we want to hear from you. This is a website that's appealing to people to take a bath on their property sale so that somebody else can have the privilege of owning a home in that city. Now, I'll tell you something. If you think that's a good idea, would you phone 974-8255? Because I would like to buy your house for well below market value. Well, yeah. Look, if you bought a house in Vancouver in the 1970s for you know 85000 and you've got the option of selling it for... Four million or three point five million, maybe, <laughs> maybe it doesn't matter all that much. Maybe you're willing to give someone a break, but yeah, this is this is just 
such a bizarre concept. Okay. I, I don't even know where to start. Sure, but if, if I could leverage up enough money, which I can't, to buy that home for $3.5 do you know what I would do with it the, the, later that day? Um, probably uh, turn around and sell it for four. That's exactly what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> so do you want to cobble together <laughs> one, 1.75 million bucks with me and go in on this deal? Uh, yeah. I, Guaranteed. Can't miss. Sounds good. Let's do it. All right. We'll see if we can get into that and some other things as well. We might, we might, if there's time, re-explore the, the, the rationale behind the changing of the team name of the Washington Bullets to the Washington Wizards, which for some reason has been a very controversial point on this radio station this morning. We try to be on top of breaking news, but sometimes we uh, <laughs> get mad about things that happened, what, 20 years ago, <laughs> which is okay, too. So uh, we're going to do that. We're going to have some fun today. Uh, and your phone calls as well, 974-8255. See, we got a couple of people on the line, so we'll get your phone calls after this break. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. All right, 974-8255. We've got a bit of time for your phone calls here. We're going to talk about uh, not criminally responsible, what that means. We'll get to that after 10 o'clock. Uh, we're going to do more on the pipeline today. We're going to talk about Vancouver real estate uh, as well. But let's uh, let's get to the phones here, take some of your calls. This is Kyle. Kyle, good morning. Hey, I was thinking about what you guys are talking about, this pipeline. I remember when uh, Enbridge, remember they were going through all their trouble there trying to get approved. and On Northern Gateway, you mean? Yeah, and yeah. the NEB uh, put 309 conditions in place and yep. accept the project, right? Yeah, two, two, yeah, 209 right? maybe. But yeah, 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 yeah you, it was a lot. Yeah. yeah, do you guys remember Vivian Krauss? I, I'm aware of who she is. Yeah, do you remember when she started linking funding from U.S. left-wing foundations to... Oh, yeah, she's done a, a ton of work on that. Uh, the, like yeah, the Tides Foundation yeah. and, uh, you know, some of these these big foundations in the U.S. Foundation yeah. and all these guys, right? Suzuki yeah. got funding for against the salmon farming in B.C. And Anyway, I, the thing yeah. I wanted to bring up is is that, you know, you got to ask yourself, why would U.S. Lift, left-wing foundations be trying to stop us from getting our oil to the East Coast? And it's really just simple math. These pipelines aren't going to get built as long as the U.S. wants all the supply. Well, they don't have all the supply. As long as the U.S. wants all the Canadian supply? Yeah. That doesn't make sense because the, the U.S. Why? Well, because the U.S. stopped a pipeline project that would have given them more access to Canadian supply. No, but it, it doesn't. They get all their supply from <laughs> rail now. I mean, we know who owns the rail tankers. It ships all the royal... Oil yeah, but, yeah, but even that's been kind of shot out of the sky here. So let me just put it to you a little bit differently, Kyle. Reframe the proposition you're making here. That sure. America wants access to uh, all the access to Canadian oil. They want to be the only buyer because they kind of got us uh, by the short ones on this one, right? They've, they get that's our right. oil at a discount. Well, they still import more oil than they... Uh, they still import a ton of oil from uh, other nations and pay full pull uh, WTI benchmark prices. And they also produce a lot of their own uh, a lot of their own oil. So, I mean, I think it's it's more astute to say that that uh, uh, America doesn't have a problem choking off pipeline projects that would send Canadian oil into America because they want to be energy dependent, like energy self sufficient. Uh, no, but let me. But no, no, no. But you're you're going the wrong direction in your logic. There. I really don't think I am. But go on. Yeah, you know, you know why? Because right now they get it all anyway. Nothing has changed. Whether 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 a Canadian company builds an oil pipeline to the United States to help get the tar sands oil down to the Texas refiners. It's going there now anyway. 
Yeah, but le- less of it is going there now, right? Like the, the, that pipeline operates at capacity when uh, when uh, Alberta oil sands are operating at capacity. So there's like only there's a, a finite amount of, of bitumen that can be shipped down there, okay. and they do get That's it right. at, at a discount. Kyle, Kyle but hang on, Kyle, Kyle, it's going down there now, man. It's going okay. down there now. I think there are individuals, wealthy individuals, that maybe have their own vested interests. Maybe people who have a stake, for example, in in rail lines that that might have a vested interest in blocking well, like pipelines. Warren Buffett, maybe okay, who, but but uh, Kyle, what you're implying here, what you're tankers. implying here, is that these these organizations are basically a front for the U.S. government, or they're advancing U.S. government policy. Well, hey, let's 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 hold on for a second. Let's not pretend this hasn't happened in the past with other issues. I mean. <laughs> The CIA got busted in Los Angeles for using drug cartels to help okay. fund communists in. We're we're, we're, so. we're spinning way off the topic, but yeah. are we? Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. Oh, yes. Yeah, we're talking. Yeah, it's, about, it's, it's, we're ilo- talk- it's illogical. It's illogical for the U.S. government to use their resources, whether it's financial. Okay, well, that, but it's not. It's, it's these yeah. it's these environmental groups who are you know funneling money into Canada to to their colleagues and other environmental groups here uh, to oppose pipelines. But that ha- that hasn't stopped the NEB from approving those pipelines. So, so Kyle, no, but to no, your but, point, though, Kyle, here. Kyle, hang on a second here. To to your point, though, you, you you're, I, I think I'm getting you right that you're suggesting that America wants the pipelines to go to America so that Canadian oil can only go to America. Is that fair? Is that what you're saying? It's fair because it's already happened. Okay. Well, then why would they block the Kinder Morton, uh, Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain expansion, which runs into uh, Northern Washington? Hey, listen to this. Okay, we'll leave it at that then. Thanks very much. 974-8255. Um, Brad wants to talk about houses in Vancouver. Hi, Brad. Go ahead. Hi, how are you? Good morning. Yeah. We're great. That's good. So, um, yeah, as much as I wish I owned some overpriced real estate in Vancouver, I don't. But this concept of people selling their property at a taking a bath so millennials can buy in, I mean, I was younger and around that age once, too. I'm similar, you know, I'm a Gen Xer that's now getting squeezed in the middle. And I think ultimately the buyer for that discounted property is really the Communist Party of Canada, (laughs) a.k.a. the NDP, who those millennials voted in because they want the nanny state to take care of that and solve this wealth redistribution issue. You know, and unfortunately, we've got a marketplace out there that's got all kinds of factors that driven it out of affordability and you've got young, a younger generation that doesn't want to spend the time to have to earn their way into, you know, a certain... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're kind of oversimplifying it. And I think the oversimplification starts when we suggest that all millennials vote for the NDP. I think that that's a kind of generalization that further drives a wedge between generations when we're trying to understand each other politically. But um, look, I, the, if you want to uh, take a shot at the at the government of British Columbia on this one, they haven't done it yet, but I, but I, I feel that the time is coming when they're going to conspire to control the price of real estate in Vancouver. And once they decide that they're going to control the price of a commodity, the jig is up, and there's going to be a whole lot of people that get screwed by that plan. But the irony is the same government relies heavily on that as an income source. Oh, no kidding, they do. Yeah, that's why, yeah, this government won't do it, but I fear the next one will. Thanks very much for the call. Yeah, well, I think what they're building to in Vancouver is to say, fine, go ahead and sell your house for whatever you want it to, but we're going to make it more difficult for foreigners to... Uh, to be in on the transaction, try to tie it up in red tape. But if there's less demand, that'll obviously affect the price. And so there's no getting around that. 
Uh, but we'll talk about that later as well. Uh, more to come on the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline. But what we come back, as mentioned, we're going to talk about what happens when an individual is found not criminally responsible. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. I'm Roger. That's Rob. We're going to talk about millennials and their struggles to buy million-dollar homes in Vancouver. Oh, woe are they. We're setting up a GoFundMe page as we speak. Not actually doing that. Uh, but we are going to address the situation of, of the uh, ballooning housing market in Vancouver. What should be done about it? And furthermore, Rob, why we're so obsessed about it? <laughs> because it seems to be a right. nationwide problem. And the way I see it is if uh, you can't afford a house in Vancouver, look for another place to live. Doesn't that make sense? I think there are two reasons why people across the country are concerned about it. For one, I think there's maybe a concern that it's uh, somehow artificial and that there's a big bubble growing in, in Vancouver. And if it bursts, it's going ripple to right, ripple right across the country. And secondly, I think people are just offended by the notion that it's, it's somehow it's almost as though Vancouver is being carved out of the country somehow. That it's, uh, <laughs> like it's no longer a city in Canada. It's just become this... This foreign city that happens to be located in Canada. Hey, 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 racist. <laughs> or, some, <laughs> or something, right? That it's, you know, Canadian, it's all this foreign money coming in and buying up all these homes, driving up the prices, and that Canadians just can't afford to live there. And that, that just seems wrong, I think, to a lot of people. People get so disappointed, by the way, when they find out who buys most of the homes in Vancouver after they present that argument. Somebody hands them the data, and then they go, well, yeah, but still... Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, the fact is there are a lot of Chinese investors who are looking yeah. for safe places to to put their money and real estate in North America, I guess in Vancouver in particular, is seen as uh, a safe bet. Right. Uh, that's what they're doing. We'll keep some powder dry on that topic for uh, our guest, Gary Marr, who's going to join us after 1130. But for now, former health to, minister, uh, no, a different guy oh, altogether, okay. actually. We're going to uh, <laughs> talk to uh, uh, Jennifer Lavely right now. Let's uh, bring her into the program. Full time writer and freelance reporter uh, for the Morinville Free Press. Uh, Jennifer, welcome to the program. It's good to have you on. Thank you. We're talking about hospital uh, visiting hours. And um, uh, having just read your piece uh, on this matter, uh, dare I say your disdain for the fact that there were actual visiting hours in hospitals uh, that are coming to an end, at least in Saskatchewan? Yes. um, Not a big fan of the hospital visiting hours, uh, mostly because of my experiences in the hospital um, as they relate to the maternity ward. All right. So why why don't you tell us, I mean, first of all, make the argument for abolishing hospital visiting hours in general. Well, I think in general, um, it puts families first and patient needs first. I think patients will recover faster if they have access to the people that they that can help them and um, that they love. Um, not everybody works a nine to five job and can come to the hospital during the strict visiting hours. Um, lots of people work shift work and have different circumstances. So I think. Um, and I think how Saskatchewan put it is uh, it's the patient um, or family presence policy, and it will ultimately help patients, I think. You know, I, I've seen it from, from both sides. And, uh, you know, even my wife was in hospital having uh, our, our two kids, you know, that, that I would have to be concerned about what time of day it was or whether yeah. I could even be there, which just seemed, seemed odd to me. But, you know, I, I also recall being a patient in hospital, having surgery, and, uh, you know, you're in a room with three other people, and 
you know, there are going to be times when uh, it's, you know, late at night, you, know, you want to be sleeping. If people are constantly coming and going, that's, that's going to interfere with that. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And um, in my article, I talk more about using common sense with the policy. Um, I was talking more specifically about the maternity ward uh, and the presence of dads or partners um, in that case. I think that having them there is not going to be as much of a bother. If you're in a shared room as the baby that's crying next to you, I don't see the partner or dad being louder than that. Um, but, yeah, I just I think that some common sense, I don't think it's a black and white right. um, um, thing. Like that There should be some common sense when it comes to visiting hours. Yeah, I mean, let me just uh, sort of break down some of the the visiting hours regulations around the Rocky View Hospital here in Calgary, their maternity ward. Uh, Antipartum, Rob, which is, I don't know if you know, it's before the baby. Okay. Uh, General visiting is between the hours of 11 and 9 p.m. Only two people, in addition to one support person, are allowed at the bedside at any given time. Now, during labor and delivery, this is very extreme. No visiting. (laughs) <laughs> I'm kidding. But uh, postpartum, this is, these are the rules, and this is kind of what we're getting to at this at this conversation, is that grandparents and children of the mother, father, uh, slash partner may visit for short periods of time between 11 a.m. and 9 p.m. Overnight stays are allowed for one support person. Uh, visiting for other family members and friends can occur between the hours of 7 p.m. and 9 p.m. So they've got it structured so that it's not just a free-for-all. But, but Jennifer, does, does the fact that basically after 9 p.m., the only person who's allowed in there is the dad? slash partner is that uh is that still a problem for you that actually wouldn't be so much a problem for me um in my case uh the visiting hour was to 8 p.m in a hospital here in edmonton and uh the dad was not allowed to be there and so that was sort of what i took issue with um after a woman gives birth she doesn't necessarily feel in great shape (laughs) and it would be really helpful and uh, beneficial to her recovery to be able to have her partner there to help her take care of the newborn baby and herself because like hospitals are busy nurses are very busy Um, I know for myself I never felt comfortable to ring the bell like can I have a glass of water if your your partner is there there's things that they can do to help you um, and the baby yeah, which which makes total sense, right? You, yeah, you don't want to be bothering the the nursing staff with what might seem like trivial requests, but are still important to you at the time when someone else can can easily deal with that. Uh, I mean, it's it's part of the problem the the way we have hospitals structured because I get it. If you've got four people in a room, one person might want a visitor, the other person might want to be sleeping. You know, it's and it's tough to to match up those those needs and wants. Uh, whereas, right. you know, if, if there's more separation, that if people want to sleep, they can sleep, and if someone else wants to have visitors, they can have visitors. It shouldn't have to intrude on others. Right. Um, there is a hospital here in the Edmonton region that everybody wants to have their baby at because they only have private rooms uh, for the recovery space. Um, so dads and partners are allowed to stay overnight, of course. Um, but in my case, uh, it was... Um, Is that the St. Albert Hospital, by the way? Yes. Yeah, it was the St. Albert That's Hospital. where my first child was born. Yeah, so, so uh, in my I case, I couldn't go then. there. Sorry, that's what I was getting to. <laughs> yes. In my case, I couldn't go there. I'm a type 1 diabetic, so I was deemed to be a high risk. So I had to have my baby at the Royal Alec Hospital. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Sorry, go on. 
No, I was just going to say, so I had three babies at the Royal Alex, and each was a very different um, situation. When I had my last in 2014, I was in a shared room again. Um, And when we were first brought there, there wasn't even anybody else in the room with me. It was a shared room, two beds. I was in one of them. There was nobody else in the other one. But the visiting hours were still strictly enforced where my husband couldn't stay. So that's what I'm just meaning when I say let common sense when it comes to visiting hours could do a lot to help patients in recovery. Okay, so this is where I'm going to generate a lot of hate mail. So please direct it to rob at newstalk77.com. But when we talk about visiting hours, particularly in the maternity ward, and, and, I mean, listen, if, if you have a loved one who is, is uh, gravely ill, terminally ill perhaps in hospital, uh, where their life, you know, could be ending shortly, then I think it's quite, uh, it's quite one thing to say. I'd like to go and visit my, my beloved friend before he or she passes away. But in the case of a baby, where we have a situation here where this, this child has got nothing but time ahead of it, uh, generally speaking, is the hospital an appropriate place for people to come to see that child? Or should we just kind of, as a society, generally speaking, move towards waiting until the baby mom is discharged from the hospital so that we can then have uh, the, the meeting of the infant in a less disruptive environment? I'm actually, I agree with you on that one. I don't think second cousins, uncles, neighbors need to be visiting the baby in the hospital. There's lots of time for that. I think more for, it, for it's for the woman. The people that she needs in her recovery should be allowed to be there. The person that she needs. Yes, yes. the person. <laughs> Maybe people, maybe she needs her mother there or her father there too or her sister. Fair enough, but I think um, I don't one think person it should is be... very complicit in this. I think that that person should be yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like the example that I used in my story was after I had my first child, obviously I had no idea what I was doing. I had never even changed a diaper before. And um, so I was left with my new newborn um, I had had an epidural, so my bladder was still frozen, so I still had a catheter in. Um, I'm a diabetic, so I was attached to a pole with an insulin drip on one side. On the other side, I had a saline drip attached to a pole, so I was not mobile at all. It was very difficult to get around. Um, So I remember being there feeling quite helpless, and I had this sort of crusty nurse who was um, (laughs) watching over me, I guess, that night. And there was just so many things that made me feel like I was incompetent as a mom already because I couldn't get up and pick up my baby. She had said to me, the baby was crying, you can pick up your baby, you know. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm already doing this wrong. But in reality, I was attached to all these things and could not have gotten up. Um, I was in the room closest to, like, farthest away away from the door um, and from the bathroom. So I couldn't even access water. And I, because this nurse was fairly abrasive, I didn't feel comfortable saying, can you get me a drink of water? I, I just wanted to brush my teeth. I couldn't get up to go there. And I truly feel that if my husband had been there, he could have helped me. Yeah. Exactly. No, I, I think it's a great point. Uh, Jennifer, we'll leave it there. People can uh, find your piece at HuffingtonPost.ca on this, the headline abolishing hospital visiting hours would respect patients' needs. Uh, and Saskatchewan's uh, doing this. I, I think it makes sense. But uh, really appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks for this.
Thank you very much. Thanks. All right. Uh, Jennifer uh, Lavely, uh, full-time writer, freelance reporter with the Morinville uh, Free Press, uh, also uh, various other publications, including this piece at, at Huffington Post. You know, to me, it makes all kinds of sense that to give patients that flexibility. Look, a hospital is going to be a busy place. People are going to be coming and going. So let's say you are sharing a room with, with three other people and you got to summon the nurse in at two in the morning. That's going to be disruptive. Why is it so much worse that you have a, a family member, you have your wife or you have a loved one staying with you so that at two in the morning they can get you that, that glass of water instead of calling in the nurse? Either way, there's going to be some disruption. The notice that it's just going to be quiet and tranquil for you. I don't think that's a realistic expectation. And for that matter, if you have surgery, you might want to be sleeping at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when you're going to have all kinds of people coming and going. Can we agree, though, that there's a certain level of disruption that is excusable, and then there's a disruption that maybe we could probably figure out a better way around? Like somebody yelling fire in a movie theater, for example, that's a disruption that I think that we can all get behind, provided there's an actual fire. <laughs> you know, well, exactly. but, but people chatting about, uh, you know, what they're going to do on the weekend at a movie theater, it's, uh, it's a level of disruption we don't want. Yeah. So uh, I got, by the way, the, the hate is coming in for my, my suggestion. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll t- take a break here and get back into it. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. We're talking about hospital uh, visiting hours. Saskatchewan is going to go ahead and say, you know what? Just come and visit whenever you need to. We're going to get rid of uh, visiting hours at at our hospitals because, um, you know, you you need to give patients that flexibility. Now, Roger said something uh, outrageous before the break. (laughs) (laughs) You want to... Did you need to explain it again? Yeah, I'll explain it again. Look, what we're talking about here, particularly in the maternity ward, is this parade of people coming to see the newborn baby. And... Like, if I go back to what Rocky View Hospital's uh, guidelines are, if, as an example, that after a child is born, grandparents and children of the mother, father, uh, uh, mother or father slash partner may visit for short periods of time between 11 and 9. Overnight stays for one support person may occur in private and designated semi-private rooms for one support person. You get to designate that person, probably the husband, right? Or the partner, I should say. Uh, Visiting for other family members, friends can occur between the hours of 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., no other children. So they're basically telling you by structuring the visiting hours this way that it's not cool to just have everybody you know on Facebook rolling in to see your new baby. It's disruptive and it's not appreciated by the other people. So some text messages, this text message came in that said, truly spoken by a man who does not have kids. Unbelievable. No, you're right. I don't have kids. But you know what? I have been to hospitals where people are convalescing and some like neighbor's neighbor drops by to say, uh, yeah, I just uh, saw on Twitter that you had a baby. I thought I'd pay eight bucks for parking and take an hour out of my day to come and pat you on the head. Yeah. That's now not that- a baby. That's <laughs> unnecessary. The other thing is, now, it was different. My wife ended up having a, an emergency C-section the first time and then a C-section again on our second kid. So she'd spent a little bit more time in hospital. Uh, but they don't keep you that long. This is not like 50 years ago where you spent a week in the hospital after having a baby. I, I, they try to get you out the door as quickly as possible. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know. Why, why do you need that parade of people to, to come see the, the baby within those first few hours? That, that's what doesn't make any sense. I think for the most part, uh, it makes a whole lot more sense. Uh, for a lot of friends and cousins and cousins of friends to wait till you're home and then come see you then. Now, I get like this one text has here says, hey, happy wife, happy life. Let her dictate who she wants to come visit. Yeah, fair enough. And, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, the mom's going to say, I don't want anybody in here. Guard that door and don't let anybody in. <laughs> or maybe maybe the mom wants 
a steady stream of visitors and well-wishers. I, so I get that she should have some say as long as it's not disrupting. I don't think you need 20 people at once. But if over the course of a day, if 20 people want to come individually and, and visit, then I guess that, that should be the mom's call. I'm, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of the other three people in that shared semi-private suite at the hospital who are just sort of sitting there going, isn't there a better way to do this? But how's it, how's it affecting Maury them? Here. I'm trying to figure out who the dad is. Is it affecting them because they, well, they're alone and they, they, they don't like the fact that someone else is having a, a nice visit with a loved one? Kind of. There's that. I'm sure there's a jealousy angle. So maybe you, as a visitor, should also go and visit with these other people. Well, see, th- you get to something here that this person texted, and this is a really great point. It doesn't change anything, I think, though. Uh, we just had our first grandchild at the Lougheed. You can never take away the opportunities to see the look on my son and his mother's face when he came out to tell us all uh, that all went well, everybody's healthy, and that, you know, we're grandparents, that he's a father. I, of course... What a yeah, ma- that's the waiting room. Though. Exactly. What a magical moment that is in the I, life. I of, did that myself. Right. I and, recall. And yes. imagine, you know, being a grandparent and getting to kind of experience a different oh, level absolutely. of that. Wonderful. Do it in the waiting room. <laughs> like, like, let that be the place. I love that. At the movie theaters, there's a whole birthday party room where kids can scream and shout and eat cake and go crazy. That's a, the place for that. It's great. Do that in the waiting room. It's fantastic. But, to, you know, we don't need to disrupt it. The people who are just sitting there laid up wondering, oh, God, when is this thing going to be out of me? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's true. It, it's funny. Someone here text says, as a man with kids, I, I, I can tell you, I couldn't wait for visiting hours to end so I could get out of there. Uh, it was funny because, you know, it, ironically enough, uh, my wife had our first kid in St. Albert. She had lived in St. Albert before her doctor was still in St. Albert. We were living in Edmonton at the time. And yeah, we had a private room and uh, I was able to stay and it was convenient. It was great. And then our second child was born at the Lougheed. I was basically told to go home at a certain point, like nine o'clock at night or whatever it was. It's kind of, okay, well, I'm going to go home and sleep in my bed. (laughs) That's not the worst thing in the world. Honey, I can't, babe. It's the rules. (laughs) Babe, you know I would stay here forever Uh, to be with you, but... They've told me I have to go. Uh, this text, we just had our first, uh, oh, excuse me. Um, I agree with you, Roger. <laughs> Thank you, by the way, for the support. It's few and far between on this topic. Uh, when we had our first child, he was the first grandchild, so we let the new grandparents come and visit. The second child, we said, see everybody at home. <laughs> Punctuated this text with an LOL. But, you know, it's like I, I really think that, that there has to be a balance here. And and we talked to uh, Jennifer Lavely, who wrote about this, and said, like, it's not black and white. And, the, you know, we can't just have either no rules or way too many rules. But the, the reality is this is a public facility, and it is, uh, they're, they're serving a lot of different people. So, it, you know, to say, like, the mom should get to have whoever she wants, like, I get that, and I, I appreciate that sentiment, but we do have to be considerate of, A, the business that's going on there, and the fact that there are many other people that are using that facility. And because there are many other people using that facility, we've got to show some consideration for them. And I think that we should try to discourage, like, overcrowding, if you will, a, a parade of people who just want to come and be looking. Well, that's fine. And, but, I mean, that's separate from having visiting hours. Because essentially what you're saying is that, you know, between 8 and 8, you can have a room full of visitors. And then from 8 o'clock p.m. on, you can't have anybody, which it just it, that doesn't make sense. Uh, hi, Aaron. How are you? Hi, um, I just wanted to comment on the visiting hours and uh, just want to make the point that many times you're sharing a room with someone else. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And I know I just about lost my mind with the amount of visitors my roommate had. And I had other kids I had to go home to. And I knew I was not going to get any sleep once I got home. <laughs> yeah. All right. So it was only going to happen there at the hospital. So. <laughs> That's a great angle on it. Please let yeah. me get some sleep. There's none in my future. Wait, wait yeah. you mean that there were visitors there like all hours of the night? No, it was it was during the day. Like... And, and it was, you know, and you're trying to catch rest in between, you know, feeding and changing, and you're just trying to get as much rest as possible. And, right. you know, I was like, how many relatives does this person have? Okay, so that's not a visiting hours issue. That's a visiting numbers issue. So are you saying we, we should limit the number of visitors, even if it's, you know, in the middle of the day? Um, yeah, almost. Yeah, like, I totally get, you know, I get it when you like your husband there. You know, during the night or, or, you know, during the day when you need help. But it's just all the other people. It just gets to be too much. Yeah. Because they're loud. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm with you, Aaron. And, and thanks very much for the phone call because I think you're kind of you're echoing the, the statement that I was making, which was that, like, like it's, it's perfectly acceptable for, you know, husband to be there, uh, immediate family and whatnot. But, like, you know, like your like second cousins or uh, Debbie from work. Right, but right. hang on, but I mean, women giving birth are not the only people in hospitals. We're talking about a policy that applies to everyone. Sure we are. You know, if uh, someone's in a coma for 20 years and they suddenly wake up, I think it's not unreasonable that, uh, you know, 20 people or more are going to want to be there for that, that moment. Touche. <laughs> Touche. Uh, but to, to, to solve Aaron's problem, if you are a new mother and you find that the person that you're sharing the room with has like too many visitors coming in, you want to get even, what you do is you order pizzas and in the special instructions, then you say like, deliver it to this room. And by the way, like talk about how cute my baby is and all that stuff. So then you'll just kind of get a parade of visitors every time and you get an awesome pizza to eat too. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I, if the point is that if, if someone wants a visitor at midnight, they, they should have that flexibility. I I'm okay with that. If the hospital wants to say, okay, but it's not going to be 20 people and we still expect you to uh, keep it down as, as much as you can if people are sleeping. Okay, that's that's fair enough. But yeah, visiting hours just seems arbitrary and and um, we could we could do away with it. All right. When we come back from the news to 1130, we're going to talk about the, the housing crisis in Vancouver, if it is one. And why, A, we're so obsessed with it, or at least we seem to be, and B, what millennials can do to pull up their socks or get a chance at a house to live in. A lot of exploring to be done. Gary Marr, uh, media, uh, post-media journalist, is going to join us. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge, weekdays starting at 9.30 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.